Well, good morning to you. It's good to have you here. I do not have words to describe what we just witnessed. Uh, but, but what I can tell you is that we have a value on staff, and the value is, is we love a good roast. And I think that that tiger shirt is going to live a very long time uh, in, our, in our midst. And so Proverbs 15 says, a happy heart makes a cheerful face. And so hopefully uh, that little fun at the beginning gives you smiles uh, no matter where you're joining us from, whether it's online, Fort Lupton, or right here at Thornton. As you saw from the video and heard from James, we are in week four of our message series called Man to Man where we are taking uh, five weeks to really cast a vision for manhood, cast a vision for masculinity, because uh, being a man isn't just about wearing the pants in your family. And besides, if, if that's you, we all know that your wife chose those pants anyways, right? <laughs> and so, um, so when it comes to being a man, a man really um, is difficult, isn't it? It's difficult in our culture to be a man. And we look to like entertainment or to the world or to movies or TV or politics or whatever it is. And as we look out for an example of what a real man is all about, oftentimes as we look to the world, it leaves us lacking. It leaves us wanting something more. It's just not that helpful. That we need a vision for us men to be able to live to. We need a vision of masculinity that we can teach our kids. We need a vision of masculinity that brings about not just chaos and havoc and disorder in this world, but actually flourishing. And so, if you've been a part of this series over the last couple of weeks, then you know that through these five weeks that we are building a vision for manhood really around five values. And if you haven't been here, let me just kind of quickly describe each of those values and where we're at in the series just to get our spot together. That week one, we looked at the first value of being a real man, which is a real man rejects passivity. And what we discovered week one is that when it comes to this value that every man of every age, when it comes to initiating in the family, in the home, in the community, that we have a tendency to slip back, that it's just a part of our DNA to shrink back rather than to step forward. Week two, we saw that a real man accepts responsibility, that every man of every age has three responsibilities, a responsibility to himself, a responsibility to his family, and a responsibility to the work that he's called to. And the way that you understand those priorities and the order that you put those priorities in have a lot to say about the kind of man that you are. Last week, if you were here, we looked at the third value, which is to a real man leads courageously. That from the very beginning pages of scripture, we see that men are called to lead. And this leadership that we're to demonstrate in the world is not a leadership that's built on title or prestige or seeking glory, but rather it's a leadership really characterized by sacrifice, service, and ultimately courage. This week, as we step into week four, we're going to look at the fourth value, which is a real man lives wisely. And the next week, we're going to wrap all of this up with a real man lives for the greater reward. That's the vision. Now, as we jump into this today, I want to just take a quick moment, and I want to speak to the women. That throughout this series, I've been speaking a lot to the men, but for a moment, I just want to speak to the ladies uh, in the room and those of you joining us online. That when it comes to this series... Uh, this series is as important for you as it is the men in the space. And the reason that I would say that um, is I'll just tell you that in a moment. But as we get into this series, one of the things that has been overwhelming is the amount of feedback that I've heard from women compared to men. In fact, I would put it at almost 50, uh, 50 women give me feedback for every one guy who's given me feedback on this series. And I think, and it's all overwhelmingly been positive, by the way. And the reason that I think that's the case is because you, as women, feel the anxiety of the lack of men in our culture. That you know that, that we live in this polarized society. 
that pits men and women against each other and declares that flourishing, human flourishing, is only achieved at the expense of the others. And so we have feminists who can't affirm and lift up women without degrading and dehumanizing men. And we have patriarchalists who, who can't affirm and lift up women without, without really definitively judging them on their capabilities and their values. It's why we're taking the time to address this issue, and specifically to address it from a biblical perspective. Because we believe that God created men and women, and the reason that he created men and women was, was with purpose for each other, for mutual flourishing and stewardship. In fact, you don't have to be here today and be a believer to understand that women have a unique, distinct, and as our pastoral resident Reagan mentioned to me this week, a, um, a, vital, and, uh, a vital role in seeing men flourish, a valiant role in seeing the flourishing of men. And consequently, as men live out these values in society, even at the cost of their own comfort and personal benefit, they uphold women, and in doing so, they bring flourishing into this world. And that every woman, every lady here, has a man in her life, whether that be your father, a brother, a husband, boys that you're raising, a friend. And they need your encouragement to live out a vision that doesn't just bring havoc and chaos into this world, but rather brings flourishing the way that God intended. So with that said, we're going to jump into value number four today, which is a real man lives wisely. A real man lives wisely. Now, throughout this entire series, we've been looking at two characters from the scripture, two people from the scripture that really identify and, and cast a vision for what masculinity can be. We see it in the person of Adam and in the person of Jesus. And what's presented to us in scripture are these two archetypes of male, of men, who really give us two different versions of masculinity, leading two different lifestyles that ultimately lead to two very different destinies. Very different destinies. In fact, Proverbs chapter 15, or chapter 19, Solomon in the great wisdom book of scripture says these words to us. He says this, when a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. There may be no better verse in all of scripture than that one right there that describes the decision that Adam made in Genesis chapter three on that fateful day that we call the fall. If you're unfamiliar with the story, it goes a little bit like this, that Adam and Eve, created by God, are in the garden that's been created for them by God. And their whole role in the garden is to, is to cultivate the garden, is to cultivate each other in their relationship in order to bring about flourishing in this world. That the garden for us in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 is the picture of pleasure that we have from God. And so Adam and Eve are, are enjoying the pleasures of life in the garden as they're intended to be when one day the serpent comes slithering in and hisses at them the question, don't you want to be like God? What do you need God for? Don't you want to be like God? Now, if you're familiar with the story, if you've read this story before, I just want to ask you a question. Have you ever paused and pondered what the serpent was actually offering in that moment? Like from the very beginning of scripture, from the very first page of scripture, Genesis chapter one, we have God declaring that he's going to make man. He's gonna make human beings in his own image, in his own likeness. That from the very words of God, from the very lips of God, we see that from the very beginning that he is creating man in his own likeness, that there is a God likeness to humans. And in this moment, as the serpent comes slithering in, Adam should have looked 
at that serpent and said, oh, don't you know? Don't you know that I'm already like God? That I'm already made in his image? That I already have a likeness, a God likeness built into the very fabric of who I am? But in that moment, in that moment, Adam plays the part of a fool. And he takes the offer that was actually no offer at all, and he takes the fruit, the forbidden fruit from his wife Eve, and as he bites into it, he is hoping to become what he already is, like God. It's a tragic picture of, of man's folly. We see so, so specifically in Adam's folly bringing away of ruin bringing destruction to his path. And as we watch history unfold around us, we watch that the heart rages against the Lord because of it. A tragic moment showing us the foolishness and the folly of man. But if you've been tracking with us in this series, when we open the pages of the New Testament, we, we get another version of masculinity. We get, we get another picture of what it looks like to be a man in the person of Jesus. And as we open the scriptures today, specifically looking at this contrast between foolishness and wisdom, what we notice in Jesus is there's, there's something different. And we notice that there's something different in Jesus, not just from us some 2,000 years later looking back on this old book, but we actually see that the people who walked with Jesus, who experienced Jesus in the flesh, notice there's something different about him too. See, the quick story of Jesus' life is that he's born in Nazareth, this small town, 70, 80 people probably max. And he grows up in this town learning to become a carpenter just like his dad. In his mid-20s, he, he leaves in order to start his ministry. He's going to become a rabbi, a teacher of God's word. In his late 20s, early 30s, he launches that ministry in a town called Capernaum. And from Capernaum, he starts traveling through all of North Israel, stopping from city to city. And when he would stop at these cities, not only would he teach in the synagogues, but oftentimes he would heal people. So as you can imagine, as Jesus is making his way through Israel, the excitement and anticipation is growing with each city that he enters into. Eventually, after six months, he makes it back to his hometown. He makes it to Nazareth. The people are excited. The anticipation is high. He goes to the synagogue. He begins to speak and teach on the word of God from Isaiah chapter 60. And as he rolls up the scroll and finishes his message, here's what the people, here's how the people respond on that day. He says that they were astonished. And the people said, where did this man get this wisdom? I mean, it must have been remarkable, right? All the anticipation, all the buildup, all the excitement. And the first thing that they notice about Jesus is they go, hey, when did our boy Jesus get all this wisdom? When did our boy Jesus become so wise? I mean, it must have been striking, right? That Jesus is known by this point as the miracle man. Everywhere he goes, he's doing miracles. It's not just like one miracle. It's like he's exploding with miracles everywhere. He's going from city to city, the anticipation. Everybody knew what came with Jesus. The miraculous came from Jesus. And these aren't just some people who are just another town. That These are people who saw Jesus grow up. These are people who, who walked with Jesus for years. And Jesus shows back up in the synagogue. And they're going, when did he get so wise? How did, how did he become that? When we open the pages of Scripture, we find that wisdom is a pretty big deal. It's a pretty big deal in the Bible. 
that there's almost 200 verses commenting on the foolishness of man, and double that when it comes to walking in wisdoms and path of, of the wise. Now, in our culture, in Western society, when we hear the word wisdom, oftentimes the way that we interpret that is like good planning or, or solid good advice. But for the Jewish person, it was so much more than that. It was so much bigger than that. See, for the Jewish person, wisdom is having the competence to grasp the meaning of a situation and then to understand that situation in order to know what to do with it, how to do it the right way at the right time. That that's what wisdom is for the Jewish person. It's, it's having the competence to grasp the meaning of a situation and understanding what to do, how to do it the right time at the right, in the right way. That's what wisdom is all about. And wisdom was such a big deal in Jewish culture and such a big deal in the Bible that we actually have a whole book dedicated to wisdom. Whole book dedicated just to wisdom literature and what it looks like to be wise. We call it Proverbs. Now, if you don't know the story of Proverbs, Proverbs is written by a man named Solomon. And Solomon was the third king of Israel. His dad was King David, who's often referred to as the greatest king of Israel. And when David passed, the crown got passed from David to Solomon. And when Solomon became king, he was around 20 years old, late teens, early 20s. That's about as old as he was when he became king. And Solomon does one of the most remarkable things a few days into him being the king. He gets down on his knees and he prays this prayer to God. He says, God, would you give me a mind of understanding and a heart of discernment? In other words, God, I know my own hearts. I know my ways of foolishness. Will you make me wise? God, will you help me have the competence? Will you give me the competence to see the circumstances that for what they are as I lead your people as their king? And will you give me understanding of what to do, how to do it at the right way in the right time? God, will you give that to me? That's the prayer of this, of this 20-year-old. It's remarkable. And maybe what's more remarkable in the story is that God actually does it. That God actually gives him this heart of discernment and this mind of understanding in such a way that we, mark, we look back on history and Solomon is known as the wisest king who ever ruled Israel. So later on in, in Solomon's life, when he's probably near death, he sits down and he puts together all of the wisdom that he has throughout the years. And he writes it in this little book called Proverbs. And the reason that he writes this book of Proverbs is in order to give it to his sons so that they would be wise this time, so that they would be wise now, not later. Wise before the injury, wise be, before the divorce, before you lose your job, before you end up in a wheelchair because of your drinking and driving, before you curse someone out because of your anger, before the bankruptcy, before the arrest. That Proverbs is Solomon's gift to you and me to be wiser now, not later. Solomon's gift to us that prescribes the path of wisdom in this life. And so if you have your Bible, I would love for you to go ahead and turn to Proverbs chapter 1, whether that's on your phone, a tablet, paper, whatever it is. And as we turn to Proverbs chapter 1, know that the reason that we're looking at this here is because here is where Solomon answers the question that everybody in Nazareth is asking of Jesus on this day. And not only that, but in Proverbs chapter 1, it sets the stage for us to understand the pathway of wisdom and how to engage it in our own lives. 
If you have your Bibles, Proverbs chapter 1, starting in verse 1, here's what Solomon writes, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealings, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. Verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Right at the beginning of this book, Solomon gives us seven words that he will use over and over again through the Proverbs to help us understand, to help us grasp, to help us get what wisdom is and then live it out in our lives. That he gives us these seven words time and time again throughout the Proverbs so that we can navigate life successfully, that we can navigate the complexities of life in our relationships, in our responsibilities as we live our life out. And right here at the beginning of his book, he gives us these seven words that are simply meant to understand and expand our understanding of wisdom. Let me give you those seven words. We see them time and time again in these seven verses. The first word is instruction, understanding, prudence, knowledge, discretion, learning, counsel. And let me just define those words really quickly for you. Instruction is the discipline to, to build character. Understanding is, is the ability to grasp truth, that prudence is the capacity to see behind what's actually going on. Knowledge is actually the Hebrew word of where we get our word science. It means to, to be able to skillfully navigate or to distinguish. Discretion is our ability to understand and, and to come up with a plan. Learning is grasping in our mind. Counsel literally means to steer a ship. It's to guide and move in the right direction. That Solomon gives us these seven words time and time again, purposely and constantly point us in the direction of wisdom. So that again, we can navigate this life and the complexities of it in our relationships and in our responsibilities. And almost, almost as if Solomon would know what our next question is. He begins to answer it for us. Solomon, these seven words, they're great. But how do I live a life of wisdom? Like, how do I become wise? How do I avoid folly? How do I be wise this time, not just next time? Like, Solomon, what does that look like? And almost as if he knows the question that's on our lips, he answers in verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. What we have here in Hebrew is called an antithetical parallelism. Parallelism. And it's something that happens over and over again in Hebrew literature, particularly in poetry and in the wisdom literature. It's a way of stating a truth positively, like the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and then it takes that same truth in an antithetical way and describes the same truth in a negative way by saying fools despise wisdom and instruction. And it's right here in verse 7, just seven verses into this amazing little book, that Solomon reveals something that we've seen throughout this series, that there are two paths to life. The path that springs forth from Adam, that is characterized in foolishness, and the path that springs forth from God, that's characterized by wisdom. Men, hear me on this. You are on one of those two paths. 
you are on one of those two roads. And the Word of God, it exposes a dirty little secret of ours. And that dirty little secret is this, is that we have a fascination with folly, don't we? That we have this curious attraction to foolishness. I mean, just think about it. How else do you explain millions upon millions of smart men and women, smart men and women who are living and heaping on huge amounts of debts because they're gambling away money that they do not have? How do you explain millions and millions of very smart people who every day get behind the wheel of a car after drinking one too many beers? How do you explain the way that we, that we eat and, and smoke in such destructive ways? I mean, why do people spend hours just scrolling through social media, hours upon hours of just scrolling, instead of simply picking up the book that actually is the source of life? Why is it here in Denver that every April we actually believe that the Rockies will be relevant in October? <laughs> Solomon says it goes all the way back to Adam, that we have this curious fascination with folly. And Solomon warns us, he says, don't let folly get its hooks in you. Don't let foolishness get its hooks into you. It will destroy you. It will ruin you. A man's folly is a way to ruin Instead, he points us to a picture of a, of a better version. He points us on a different path, a, a path from, from God. He says the beginning of the pursuit of wisdom, the beginning of that pursuit, the beginning of, of becoming wise is in fearing God. That's the beginning. That's how we become wise. And as we read that, there's something a little bit odd to us about that statement, isn't there? I mean, it, it's odd to us that Solomon uses the word fear as a seemingly positive thing. It's a bit confusing, isn't it? And the reason that it's so confusing to us is because often when we think about fear, we think of it as an emotion that's, that's used to explain like the negative, like, like I'm afraid or, or describe terror. That maybe it would be something like this, that you're gonna go to a haunted house with your friends. And when you see that freaky, scary crown, you would say like, like there is fear in my heart. Or if a spider dropped out of the ceiling onto your lap, maybe you would say I'm fearful of, of spiders. Or maybe when you're in the presence of someone that you don't necessarily trust, you would say I'm afraid. Or because of circumstances that happened in your life, that as they mimic things earlier in your past, that as you walk into that, you would say that there's, that there's fear in my heart of what might happen. That fear in our world is, is ultimately seen as an emotion indicating to us that something's wrong and that something significantly is wrong. And that's what throws us off here, isn't it? That the way that Solomon uses it in this verse, the fear of the Lord, is the beginning of knowledge, is the beginning of wisdom, it sounds as if he's using it in a positive way, almost in a relational way. He seems to believe that there is a way to be fearful of a person who we trust. And we go, <laughs> like, Solomon, how does that work? Like, what does that look like? Well, let me give you an example from my own life that many of you know, or maybe you don't know, I'm a huge Kentucky basketball Wildcat fan. That's, I love Kentucky basketball. And uh, in fact, when this whole COVID thing started of March in 2020, I was at the SEC basketball tournament ready to enjoy a great week of basketball. 
So when I was 16 years old, I got my first ex experience to be able to go to Rupp Arena. That's where Kentucky plays its home games. And because of a family friend, we got these tickets. But these tickets happened to be like up in the nosebleed area of the arena. Like we were like up at the very top. We were sitting on metal uh, bleachers with no back, screaming our heads off with 22 other thousand fans, right? Like sardines, packed in like sardines. Like it was a dream come true. And after the game, Kentucky won, of course, after the game, they, they gave us these sweet posters, and, um, and we got to go down into the locker room, and Coach Tubby Smith came out, and, uh, and he's this great coach, and, and it was so cool that we got to talk to him, and then players like Ron Mercer and Nazi Muhammad, Scott Padgett, men who would go on and play in the NBA, they came out and they started talking to us, and, and they're signing our poster here, and as all of this is happening with these NBA players, out of the corner of my eye, I see the famous actress Ashley Judd. Now, for 16-year-old version of me, there was no Kentucky fan quite as passionate and beautiful and divine as Ashley Judd. And I took my posters from the future NBA players, and I ran through Ashley Judd's, body, body, uh, Ashley Judd's bodyguard, and I came before her trembling with my poster, and I said, Miss Ashley, will you sign my poster? And she said, sure will, honey. Oh, she called me honey, right? Like, like, and right there, right there is Ashley Judd's signature from that day. Now maybe, just maybe, you have an experience in your life that you found yourself in the presence of someone that you so revered, someone you were so in awe of that you trembled before them. That maybe it was a, maybe it was a mentor or a youth pastor, a friend, a family member, but someone in your life, that in that moment, they had the power to do just about anything to you, and yet you trusted them. That's positive fear. See, the way that Solomon is using fear is to simply help us understand the feeling of being overwhelmed and controlled. And that feeling of being overwhelmed and controlled can happen negatively, like when circumstances are bad, or it can happen positively in a relationship with someone that we trust. That Solomon is talking about being overwhelmed and controlled by, by God, and what he's saying is that the fear of the Lord is to be overwhelmed and controlled by a God who loves you, by a God who has shown you mercy, by a God who, who has shown you grace, to be overwhelmed and controlled by that kind of relationship in your life, that this is positive fear and it's all about love. It's all about the knowledge of God and deciding that knowing who God is is more important than anything else I do in my life. Solomon says that's the beginning of wisdom. See, most people in our world are believing in a God out of negative fear, aren't they? That most people picture the God of the scriptures like the Greek God Zeus who's ready to just smoke us at any moment for messing up. Now, does the God of the Bible have that ability? Absolutely. But the Bible teaches us that, that the God of the Bible is one of love, one of grace and mercy, where the thing that he desires most is a relationship with you, a relationship with you where, where you would put away and not worry about what others think because the only thing that matters is what he thinks. 
that you wouldn't act out of your own dignity and your own pride and your own ego, but that you would lay that all out to the side, that you wouldn't have insecurity because you know that your identity is secure in God. Solomon says that's the beginning of your wisdom. That's the beginning of your wisdom. That's what he wants from you. That's what Jesus demonstrated for us. And the only way that that's possible is to be in a relationship through Jesus. That years later, actually centuries later, after Solomon writes these words in Proverbs, the Apostle Paul writes these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24. He says, For those who are called both Jews and Greeks, those are believers, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. That for those of us who are believers, Jesus is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so I want to end today with a question that might be a little bit uncomfortable. But my question is this, is are you practicing wisdom in regards to your soul? Are you practicing wisdom in regards to your soul? I mean, we all have those moments, don't we? When we're lying in bed late at night, not able to sleep, looking at the ceiling. And in those moments, oftentimes we have the thoughts, God, are you and me? Are we good? Are you and me? Are we, are we okay? And what if in that moment, as you're looking at the ceiling, you saw God's head shake? No. No, we're not. That your foolishness is leading to your ruin. And maybe in that moment, it's because it's a night after a couple of beers too many with your friends, and you left knowing that you shouldn't have drove home, but you did anyways. And while you got home okay, you thought, man, if a police officer pulled me over at any time, my life would be over. It would be ruined. It would be destroyed. That maybe it's a night that you're contemplating the next time my boss rolls his eyes, that'll be the last time. Maybe it's a night where you're just one text away from committing an affair, or maybe it's you're one text too far and you've already committed the affair. Listen, I don't know what your folly is in your life, but perhaps the wisest thing that you can do right now is just admit that you've made some really foolish decisions in your life. And so things between you and God, (laughs) they're not so good. And maybe the wisest thing that you can do in your moment right now is to simply fall before Jesus and to ask him for mercy that he would save you even from your own recklessness. That moment is what we call the gospel, the good news, where we realize that Jesus did die for our recklessness, that Jesus did die for our foolishness, that Jesus did die on the cross for our sins, so that when we're laying in bed at night, looking up at the sky, wondering if God and me were good, that we hear the voice of Jesus saying, yeah, not because of what you've done or what you're doing, but because I died for you. If this is where you're at, I would encourage you simply to text the word Jesus to our text number, 720-513-1933. And we'll have a pastor reach out to you in this next week to talk further about that. Would you pray with me, Father? Lord, we're grateful to be in your presence. 
Lord, we're grateful for fun and laughter and cheerful faces. Lord, we're grateful for your word. And Lord, we also come before you asking for your forgiveness of the folly and the foolishness in our lives. Lord, that you created us to live life for you. You created us to to be in fear of you in that positive way. Lord, to know you is everything that we need. And yet, Lord, so many times we're distracted in this life by folly. Chasing an offer that's not really an offer at all. Hoping to become something that we already are. And so, Father, today I pray, Lord, for the men in this room, that they would put away their fascination with folly. Lord, that through the fear of you would be the beginning of wisdom in their life. Lord, your word tells us in the the Psalms through Moses that there's no wiser person in all the world than the person who knows where they stand with you. Lord, we want to be good with you. We know that that begins with knowing and loving your son, Jesus. And so, Lord, today I pray for those. God, I pray for those who are believers, who have made steps of foolishness in their life and brought destruction that you never intended. God, I pray that they would repent. God, I pray for those in this room who who may have never known you. And yet, Lord, as they look back on their life, they can see the foolishness and the destructive path that is caused in their lives. And that today, Lord, that they would hear that whisper in their heart and give you their lives. Lord, we pray this in your remarkable name, the name of Jesus. Amen. We come to communion. And as we partake today, we're reminded of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you've never read it, I would encourage you to do so. It's a great text describing the wisdom of God and how the cross and where Jesus' body was broken and where his blood was spilled is foolishness to the world. But to those who believe, it's life. And so today we celebrate the life of Jesus that we have, that his body was broken for the forgiveness of our sins and his blood poured so that we might know life. And so will you join me as we partake today? And with the cup, this is the life that we have. In our joy, we realize that our folly, our foolishness is not the end of us that the last word is Jesus and the cross. And so today we celebrate. So I'm gonna ask you to stand as we sing together online. You can take whatever posture you need. If you're in need of prayer today, if, if you've been living a life of foolishness and folly and you need some prayer, we would love to pray for you. You can make your way over under the prayer sign or just click the button online. Let's sing together.